0: Hey, this is Andrew Houghton at ESPN Missoula, here to intro a new episode of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the podcast that brings you all things soccer in Missoula and the wider Montana area, is brought to you by Zootown Sports Cards, Blackfoot Communications, and Canby Tap House and Coffee. This week's episode is a bit of a deep cut. It's one I've had in the can for a while, so that's why I'm introing it here so that people aren't surprised or confused. I recorded it back in late August, coming out of Soccer Day Missoula, which was a great event put on by Soccer Alliance Missoula. An afternoon full of pickup soccer, games, contests, meeting people, seeing friends down there at Fort Missoula. I've got a number of podcast ideas that I want to present to you coming out of that Soccer Day Missoula. This one features Sophia Etier, an AmeriCorps historian who put together the great history of soccer in Missoula exhibit that was on display there at Soccer Day I just thought it was a great exhibit, very cool, very interesting, very enlightening. And so I wanted to grab Sophia and bring her to the studio to talk a little bit about the history of soccer in Missoula, but also the process and the work that went into putting something like that together. So we recorded, I think the next week after Soccer Day, if I'm remembering correctly. So this episode is a little bit out of date and you'll hear me refer to, you know, last week at Soccer Day Missoula. Obviously that's not true anymore, but don't get confused. And don't let it distract you from the great stuff that we were talking about in this podcast. Sophia was really insightful about her research, about the process of being a historian and putting something like that together. And she shared some of the things that she learned in the process of putting together that great exhibit about the history of soccer in Missoula. So that's what we're bringing you today. I'll also have a mid-episode interlude on some more timely stuff, just an update on the Montana Grizzlies and an update on Montana high school soccer. As things are looking around the Treasure State, with Class AA about to start the state tournament, Class A, of course, already in their state playoffs here. So, if you're looking for an update about what's going on, stay tuned to this episode. Soccer and Snow and Smoke again is brought to you by Zootown Sports Cards, Blackfoot Communications, and Canby Tap House and Coffee. Episode 24 of Soccer and Snow and Smoke with Sophia Tear kicking off right after this. Thank you for listening. And welcome everybody to another episode of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton. I had a great time last weekend at Soccer Day Missoula down there at the Fort Missoula, and it is an event that's going to be paying dividends for this podcast uh, for months to come. A lot of potential great content ideas coming out of there. Met a lot of great people. Played a little bit of soccer. Not very well, but definitely met a lot of great people um, who are going to be appearing on this podcast in the future. And uh, one of those people is here in studio today with me, Sophia Etier, who put together, I thought, one of the coolest things that I saw down there. She is serving with AmeriCorps this summer in a position at the Historical Museum at Fort Missoula, and what she did is she put together an exhibit of the history of soccer in Missoula, dating all the way back to the early 1900s, which was very cool. Um, Some old pictures, archives from the newspaper. So Sophia's joining me in studio today, uh, and this is just going to be really open-ended. I was fascinated by the exhibit she put together. If you were down there, you might have seen it. And I just wanted to ask her a little bit more about the process of putting that together and then what she learned about the history of soccer in Missoula while she was doing that. So Sophia... Thank you so much for coming in and joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: First of all, tell me a little bit more about your background as a historian, you know, your career, some of the other stuff that you've worked on, and then how you ended up sort of in this position for the summer.
1: Um, So I got my bachelor's from the University of Montana with the history uh, program, Um, I've worked in historic preservation. I've worked at the fort previously, but I was a collections intern, so a little bit different than what I'm doing now. Um, I have done oral history projects for the university in the city of Missoula, so I've worked with both the city and the county, along with exhibiting at the fair every year. Um, And I recently just got my master's in public history, so that allows me to interact a little bit more on the public scale with community projects as a uh, bigger entity, not just an intern, but rather acting as a representative. And then this year, I gained a position through AmeriCorps um, just to kind of round out my graduate experience, you know, serve a little bit more for the community, make an impact while I have just a little bit of school left, um, and I was able to get a position with Christiana, the education director at the fort, that way. Um, so that's kinda where I'm coming from.
0: And then, tell me a little bit more about how you got attached to this project about the history of soccer in Missoula.
1: Charlie approached uh, Christiana, I think, a couple of weeks before I ser- or started serving at the fort, and he was talking to Christiana and Matt, the executive director of the Fort, Matt Lotzenheiser, And he said, you know, I would like to do this project. I, you know, want to reach out to the community. I think it'd be cool to have a historic aspect. And Christiana has known me from my first internship at the Fort. And she kind of said, hey, Sophie, do you want to take lead on this? I know you're really good at research. You know, you really like community development, community outreach and so yeah she just kind of just put me on the on the project and said go for it so it was pretty it was pretty simple but you know I feel really honored to be able to have been part of the project
0: yeah and that's Charlie Vandam who's been on this podcast before a big friend of soccer and Snow and Smoke who really did a great job there with his work with Soccer Alliance Missoula putting that soccer day together and it's not surprising that he was reaching out to a whole bunch of organizations to try to get them to put something together for this. Um, So not surprising that he reached out to the Historical Museum at Fort Missoula. If you were there at Soccer Day, you would have seen this project. It's a lot of old newspaper archives, a lot of old pictures, really cool. But before we get into talking about any of the specific history, what do you as a historian, what's the process of putting something like that together?
1: So... Every historian's process is a little different. Some people go through what secondary sources are, so like contemporary sources, sources by people you know in present day and kind of work backwards. However, I like to work through archives starting from the earliest that I can go um, within the time range that I was given. Charlie and I and Christiana had sat down a, um, a couple of times and said, you know what exactly are the is the time frame we're looking at? Do you want to do like full soccer history? Do you want to do just local? And so we kind of um, settled on nineteen hundred through two thousand, so a good you know hundred years. So I just basically started with um, newspaper archival research and worked my way up to about 1972. Um, Charlie had provided scrapbooks on the later end, um, kind of with the formation of strikers, the younger youth teams in Missoula. Um, And so basically, I just wanted to see, I like starting with the roots first. I feel like the roots are the most important. Understanding, you know, we have this now, but what made it today? Like, what influenced everything previously to get what we have today? So that's why I like working back to forward rather than forward to back. I feel like you get a better grasp of the history. Um, And so I just did archival research Um, I looked at a few secondary sources, but not many. I felt like the Missoulian Archives um, was just chock full of information. And I'm really a fan of newspaper archives because it really talks about grassroots history. Um, other secondary sources can be very broad, but when you have a newspaper, it's everyday, day-to-day people's lives and you really see you know, where the history hit the ground running and I think that's really
0: important to do. Were you a soccer person at all b- before this? No,
1: I wasn't. I actually, I mean my little brother played soccer you know, like in elementary school and they put all the little kids together in groups and kind of just let them go. Um, but no, actually, I've never played soccer. I, I have an interest in soccer. I studied European history in um, my undergrad. So that always leads to soccer, especially, you know, British history. You, you get soccer and rugby thrown in at the later end. Um, but I actually wrote professionally for ice hockey when I was in high school. So totally different than soccer.
0: Sophia, tier... Serving with AmeriCorps this summer at the Historical Museum at Fort Missoula, she put together a great project about the history of soccer in Missoula for display at Soccer Day, which happened last weekend. She's joining us here for an episode of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Soccer and Snow and Smoke is brought to you by Zootown Sports Cards, Missoula's hub for all things related to sports card collecting. Go down there and see those guys, 2100 Stevens Avenue in the Stevens Center. They've got a great collection, a ton of soccer cards. They've got products from the Premier League, Champions League, Bundesliga, La Liga. They've got some NWSL stuff down there. I know there was a set of cards out for the Women's Euros that just happened this summer. So go down there and check out what they've got, Zootown Sports Cards, in the Stevens Center, 2100 Stevens Avenue. Sophia, you talk about going through these newspaper archives dating back, and, you know, dating back really to the early 1900s, are those physical records anymore, or is it all digital? What's, what's the actual process look like? What are, you, what are you looking at when you're going back and looking at those?
1: So I actually use a web source called newspapers.com. It's funded or supported by ancestry.com. So essentially what the program does is takes all kinds of newspaper archives from across the country and digitizes them into a searchable platform. Um, and so I was using that. I'm sure, though, that the Missoulian archives would be accessible for physical, you know, if you wanted copies, if you wanted to look through the physical items. The, they have huge books of Missoulian newspapers at the Missoula County Records Center um, off of, I think it's Broadway. Um, so you can do that, but it takes a lot longer. Because, um, like I said, they compile them in years and they're every day for a year and they're, they're pretty hefty.
0: Well, that has to still be a pretty tall task, even when it is all digitized, right? Because you're looking at just like you said, every day in and out, just the news, you're going back through it. I mean, what's that what's that process like?
1: Yeah, it took me a few weeks, to be honest. Um, So I just essentially put in, you know, soccer, Missoula, Montana, 1900 to I think I did 1975. And um, yeah, you just have to sit there and it pops up the oldest results. And so you just have to sit there and just, you know, go through every single one and see if it matches what you're looking for. Um, so some it's, it's a broad search to begin with, but it really pays off more. Um, some of the uh, illustrations I put on the boards that you saw were from the First and Second World Wars, um, which had nothing really to do with soccer in Missoula, but it had to do with soccer in the international sense. Um, So you can get stuff like that, not just, you know, this is just what happened in soccer in Missoula, you know, with the little trail. You can kind of see how everything comes together, which I really like. Um, But yeah, it is a hefty process. It took me a few weeks and I. Just sat there and just flip through results and hope for the best. You get kind of tired in the middle of it um, because it is just the kind of same thing. And then you go through periods where you know results don't show up. It's not what you're looking for. Um, but the passion for the project that I had, it really, it doesn't make it tiring. It just makes it exciting.
0: Sophia Tear. She's serving with AmeriCorps this summer in a position at the Historical Museum at Fort Missoula. She did a great project on the history of soccer in Missoula that was on display at Soccer Day last weekend. And I've got to ask, is this going to be uh, displayed now at the museum or where can people find this now?
1: I think that Charlie kept my boards. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I am not sure. I have been thinking about contacting Charlie And kind of establishing, you know, maybe a permanent project because a a website possibly that has the information on it. Um, We're actually thinking about doing an oral history project with Soccer Alliance Missoula about getting all of the older and maybe even current players to talk about how they've been involved in soccer and how, you know, Soccer Missoula has changed their lives or impacted their lives. Um, so we're kind of in the formation of that. It's not really established yet. um, but just thinking more on a permanent basis at this point, yeah, he took my board, so I don't know I don't know what we're gonna do with that, but hopefully something I feel like it's really important for you know, Missoula is such a diverse place with diverse history, and so I feel like soccer really plays into that. Soccer allows people from. You know, every economic class, every background, every, you know, whatever to join in. You don't, you have, you can have no experience, and which is what Soccer Day was about. And I think that's so critical to know about Missoula's history that Missoula is a place where you can come from every background and you can, you know, just hit the ground running and, you know, it, something will come from that. Missoula is a great place of opportunity, and I feel like soccer also offers that. And so the history would be really representative of that. And a permanent exhibit, or at least a semi-permanent exhibit, would be really cool, um, either on the website or in some other fashion. Maybe Charlie could figure that one out.
0: We'll have to get together with Charlie Vandeman and, and talk about a permanent home for that exhibit. Let's talk a little bit about that history. What was the first record you found, you know, the first reference to soccer in Missoula?
1: So the earliest reference that I found was a game in 1909 between the Montana State University, which is now University of Montana, right, um, and a Forest Service team. They had played, I think, over on the university grounds. And the Forest Service, I think, won, or it came to a tie. I can't quite remember. Um, I went through a lot of articles. And it was, yeah, it was just the first ever happening or recorded happening of soccer in Missoula. You know, there could have been pickup games before that, but this was the first, like, actually documented one. And it was interesting to see that it was between the Forest Service and the University of Montana team because the University of Montana team didn't officially exist until, I think it was 1959. Yeah, much later. Yeah, much later. And they had some roots in that because they would have soccer games played on the Oval um, during commencement uh, they would have that called uh, I think it was like recreation days where they would put like freshmen and sophomores together and they would just say go at it and see who won um, and soccer was around it wasn't official like the uh, Butte had a soccer team that the minors they would play for the the Miners field day um, in the early 20s so it was around but that was the first case of you know
0: any formed team ever existing right and somebody actually bothering to write down the result you know exactly yeah it's it's really interesting because that was back sort of in the period of the formation of official college sports in general when college sports actually grew out of sort of the very informal nature that you're talking about and this happened with everything I mean that was back when The University of Montana was just in the first years of having a football team Mm -hmm. and and actually having a schedule and actually playing against other schools rather than just, you know, some sort of big mess on the lawn between two teams that were thrown together. So that was interesting. What else did you find out? Tell me the most interesting other things that you found out.
1: Well, to kind of piggyback off that, you are very correct. Soccer became very popular in English secondary schools, um, so kind of like upper elementary, middle kind of high school students, and it came across to the East Coast into the Ivy League schools on the East, and it kind of started pushing um, west. But I think that the coolest thing that I found out was that the popularization of soccer, at least in Missoula, it, probably nationally as well, was when um, the U.S. was involved in the First World War. Uh, soldiers from Montana, from the United States, began playing soccer, with uh british companies in the trenches and so when they would return home you know they thought well this kept up morale in the trenches it kept us fit you know it kept us together as companies um you know this is a great thing to bring back to the united states play it on um you know military forts to play it in communities and to just expand on what we knew from the british army so that's what was kind of cool that i didn't realize that that it didn't gain in popularity until the end of world war one when all the american soldiers returned home and wanted to keep playing the game because they were so impressed um not only with the game itself but with what it did to people who played it you know it really it really made their experience which as you might know, experience in World War One was incredibly harsh. It made it that much better and it impacted them that much that they wanted to carry it back. So I think that was really cool to see that, you know, we owe soccer's um, existence in Missoula to, you know, World War One soldiers and their experience with British companies.
0: That's a fascinating note. How did it grow out of there? I mean, what, how did you see the growth of the game in Missoula?
1: So... You know, kind of following that in the 20s, um, Fort Missoula actually was playing soccer between companies. Um, there is a, a Fort Missoula notes section that I found for the timeline that I created for the soccer day um, that they were doing the same thing in 1923. They were taking companies and they were having them play against each other because, you know, it kept up their physical shape, but it also kept them formed as companies. They could fight along each other better if they had, you know, so, sort of a, uh, a group sport to compete in. Um, and then in the 30s, it kind of, you know, expanded into Missoula recreation programs. Um, but again, in that time, you had some tricklings of UM sports um You had some women's teams, which I thought was really interesting because we didn't see the rise of women's teams at the university really soccer-related until much later. Um, But, yeah, we had women's teams. We had men's teams. They were traveling teams. Um, So that kind of brings it up to, like, the 30s. You have that, you know, it's kind of starting at the university. It's kind of starting to take place in – the city itself you know the community aspect um, so it's grown from military game to recreation game and then actually there was a um, um athletic director that started putting on sports camps for high school students and so that was a really big push factor for getting kids interested in soccer in missoula at that time
0: Hey, taking a break here on Soccer and & Snow and & Smoke to get you caught up on all the soccer happenings around the state of Montana. The second half of my interview with Sophia Tier will be coming up right after this. Soccer and & Snow and & Smoke is brought to you in part by Camby Tap House & Coffee. Camby, new to Missoula but already with two great locations in the Garden City. One in the Sawmill District and the other right across from South Campus Stadium there on South Higgins. Fall is the season to flourish at Camby Tap House. Go to either one of their great locations and try a beer from their carefully curated Heavily rotated selection of taps, or one of their great selection of wines, or heck, the food is good too. Canby Tap House again with two locations in Missoula, one in the old Sawmill District and the other right there on South Higgins Avenue across from South Campus Stadium. Let's get this update started right there at South Campus Stadium, where the Montana Grizzlies lost 2-1 to to Northern Arizona on Sunday afternoon, putting the Grizz in even more of a tough position. They appeared to break out of their funk with a 2-1 win over Northern Colorado, who was picked number one in the conference last weekend. But then in their last home game of the season this weekend, like I mentioned, a 2-1 setback to Northern Arizona. Montana has, there's no other way to put it, struggled in Big Sky Conference play after coming in as one of the favorites. They were picked number two in the conference's preseason poll. They had a good preseason A good non-conference schedule, playing against some really good teams and looking generally like a team you would expect to be at the top of the Big Sky Conference, but this loss drops the Grizzlies to two wins, three losses, one draw in Big Sky Conference play. Top six teams make the Big Sky Conference tournament, and right now it's the Grizzlies hanging in that number six spot. Montana on seven points through six conference games. Weber State right behind them after beating Idaho State on the weekend. The Wildcats on six points, and that makes this coming weekend a huge one for the Grizzlies. I mean, this is a team who's won a conference championship every year since Chris Chitavitsky's been here, either regular season or the conference tournament. They've been in the NCAA tournament three times since Chris Chitavitsky's been here. This is a team with big expectations, and it's okay to fall short of those, but I think an acceptable falling short of those expectations for Montana would be losing in the conference tournament championship it wouldn't be missing the conference tournament in its entirety. So the Grizz go on the road this coming weekend at Idaho State, and then the big one is at Weber State on Sunday at 1 p.m. That game in Ogden might end up being a winner is in for the conference tournament now. The Grizz can clinch before they play that game if they beat Idaho State, who's struggled this year. The Bengals with just one win in conference play and two wins overall. Grizz play in Pocatello on Friday night. If they win that one and Weber State, which only has three wins this year, loses on Friday at home against Northern Colorado, the Grizzle will clinch on Friday. They'll be on 10 points. Weber State will be on six with one game left. There'll be nothing the Wildcats can do to catch them. But any other sequence of results from those Friday games, if the Grizz drop points... If Weaver State goes out and beats Northern Colorado, which again was picked number one in the conference preseason poll, but is one of only two teams to be eliminated from conference tournament contention already, Northern Colorado winless in conference play, zero wins, five losses, one draw, then that Sunday game against Weaver State would be huge for the Grizz. A little bit about that weekend game with Northern Arizona, I was in the press box doing color commentary for the ESPN Plus broadcast with my good friend Jackson Wagner on the play-by-play call. Real quick before I get into any analysis of that game, huge shout-out to Jackson and to Joel Carlson and to Nate Michael over at the University of Montana for letting me step in on some of those games. Shout-out to those guys. I had a great time doing it. Montana had chances to win that game against Northern Arizona, and I think if you talk to Chris Chitavitsky, that's what he would point to. Northern Arizona had 19 shots, but both of the goals that Montana gave up I think were goals that they can look back at and pin on their own mistakes. It wasn't anything that Northern Arizona did. The first goal came two minutes into the game. A back pass to Camelia Zo, A good high press from Northern Arizona and Camelia Zo, instead of just booting the ball long off the back pass, tries to pass it short back out to Allie Larson. I don't think Larson was expecting it. She turned her back on the ball. Allison Velos breaks in, steals the pass for Northern Arizona, and it's an easy finish for her into essentially an open net. Montana came back about 10 minutes later with a great passage of play, got the ball down the right, swung it back over to the left. Ava Samuelson puts a cross right on the head of Delaney Lou Shore for the sophomore forward's 7th goal of the year. That's the most in the conference. And uh, Ava Samuelson, who, like Shore as a sophomore, moved up into a tie for second in the conference with her 4th assist on that goal. It was a great response from Montana, I really thought. They dominated the game. They looked good after giving up that early kind of fluke goal. Definitely a deserved equalizer. The Lumberjacks are one of the highest scoring teams in the conference, and a lot of that can be attributed to an 11 nothing win over an NAIA school at the end of their non-conference schedule, but they're a good team. And they've got some talent, and they played the Grizz straight up after that. Ended up out shooting Montana 19-5 for the game, and the Lumberjacks got their winner in the second half. Again, on a play that I think Montana will be kicking themselves about. Just a long ball, really a clearance from the back from Northern Arizona that splits Montana's two center backs. And it was Velos again with a good touch on the ball, one-on-one with the goalkeeper, and she slides it right between Camellia Zou's legs for her second goal of the game, and that was the eventual winner. The Grizz, I think it's clear they still don't have a player who they trust. On the forward line, they were trying a bunch of different combinations. Jaden Griggs, a senior who's missed a lot of the year with a back injury. She came back in this game, started on the left wing, got some time at striker as well. Chris trying different combinations up on that forward line of his 4-3-3 that the Grizz are playing this year. Chris a great friend of this podcast. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a spectacularly good soccer coach. But I just thought watching this one that the Grizz were way too regimented, way too stuck in their patterns of play. Not able to get out of the patterns of play that they had drilled before the match. I think it was obvious to see... That Montana had a plan for how they wanted to attack in this game, and they got to it and they were able to do it early. You know, they had a plan to play the ball into Delaney Lushore and have her hold it up and lay it off to one of the midfielders, generally Sidney Halsteen, and then have her look for the ball up the right side to Skyley Thompson running in behind. It worked gorgeously on Montana's goal. It worked really nicely a couple of other times, but I think Northern Arizona adjusted to it. And Montana's players, I just didn't see them playing with any sense of freedom or creativity for a lot of that game, and the Grizz really didn't have a plan B after Northern Arizona adjusted, and now maybe part of that is they were missing Mesa Walters, who's leading the conference in assists this year, the New Mexico transfer. A great creative player in the center of midfield. She missed out because she picked up a red card late in that Northern Colorado game and was suspended for this one. Maybe that was part of it, but you contrast that with a team like Northern Arizona that was playing really free I mean, trying flicks, trying tricks, trying creative little through balls all the time. It was a big contrast to sort of how the Grizz were playing. And again, the Grizz could have and maybe should have gotten something out of this game. They only had five shots, but they had a couple more great chances. A couple chances fell to Skylie Thompson, who's been so good for the Grizz this year, getting into good positions, and she's just struggled to finish. And it happened again. She had a free header at the back post. Off another great run from Samuelson and a great cross, all alone at the back post, just couldn't keep it down. And then Montana also had a goal disallowed late, Eliza Bentler, the freshman from Billings, coming in and just hustling to make something happen, as she did when she scored the winner against Northern Colorado last weekend, fighting for a ball in the box. Northern Arizona's goalkeeper coming to claim, I'm not sure she ever had possession. Bentler sort of pokes it away from her and puts the ball into the open net, and that would have given Montana a draw in that game. That passage of play came really late. It was a tough call, it was close for me, but the referee Joe Pickens said that Trinity Corker and Northern Arizona's goalkeeper had possession, and that was basically it for Montana. Didn't really have any good chances after that. I just think you gotta be worried about the Grizz at this point. There's a lot of talent on that team, there's of course so much great coaching experience on that team, They've got two games left until the conference tournament, and that's even if they make it into that conference tournament. This is when you have to turn it on, and if you're playing like this in these situations, in these important games, that kind of just is what you are. I'm not going to bet against the Grizz, but they have that huge weekend coming up, as I mentioned, playing at Idaho State at 7 p.m. Friday in Pocatello, and then the one that might be for all the marbles, playing Weber State in Ogden at 1 p.m. on Sunday. That might be the game that determines whether they get into the Big Sky Conference Tournament this year or not. Okay, enough about the Grizz. That was a lot of analysis of a game that ended up in no points for Montana. Let's switch gears and talk a little high school soccer because we're heading into the state tournament. As a matter of fact, the state playoffs for Class AA are going to start tomorrow, the day after I publish this podcast, October 18th. For the boys' Class AA, Hellgate. Stop me if you've heard this before, but wraps up the number one overall seed. Knights finish 13-1. and Avenge their only loss of the season to Helena Capital with a 3-2 win over the Bruins in the last game of the season. Bozeman, your number two overall seed. After the Hawks, unsurprisingly... I know, same as Hellgate, but they come out as the number one seed out of the Eastern Conference. That was such a great dogfight in the Eastern AA Boys Conference this year. But Bozeman clinches the number two overall seed by going 11-2-1. Both of their losses were to Billings Sr. And their one draw against Billings West, but the Bozeman Hawks enter the state tournament on a four-game winning streak to close the season. Helena Capital, who we already talked about, the number three overall seed. And then Billings West out of the East, number four overall. That dogfight over in the Eastern AA Conference shook itself out a little bit, but still so, so close. Billings West actually had fewer losses than Bozeman, the number one seed. Billings West, the Golden Bears, only lost once. It did come against Bozeman, but the Golden Bears also had three ties, which drops them down below the Hawks in the end. Top four seeds get buys, and we already went through them. Hellgate, Bozeman, Helena Capital, and Billings West. But Billings Sr. and Bozeman Gallatin, the number 3 and 4 seeds coming out of the East, they don't get buys, but they're dangerous teams. Sr. hosting Great Falls High, Gallatin hosting Belgrade. They should both get through those games, and those are good teams. Like I mentioned, Billings Sr., the only team to beat Bozeman this year, and Sr. did it twice, and Bozeman Gallatin as well at 9-4-1. and one. The Raptors have a win over Billings Sr., so I think any of those top four teams from out of the East capable of beating anybody Kalispell Glacier, Missoula Sentinel, the three and four teams out of the West. Girls AA, number one overall seed. Again, Missoula Hellgate, and they got through the season undefeated. 11 wins, three draws. For the Knights, those draws coming against Sentinel. And then two straight to close the season against Helena High and Helena Capital. Bozeman Gallatin out of the East is the number two seed on the girls' side. The Raptors also went undefeated. 12 wins and 2 draws, with those draws coming against Billing Sr. and Billing Skyview, but Gallatin closing the regular season on a 7-game winning streak. Helen is the number 3 seed on the girls' side, that's a dangerous team with the Todorovich sisters, plus Avery Kraft and Tess Lawler. Billing Skyview, the number 4 seed for the girls' AA State Tournament. Those first-round matches again kicking off on Tuesday. Number three from the east, Missoula Sentinel taking on Kalispell Flathead. Number four from the east, Missoula Big Sky taking on Helen Capital and in the east. Number three, Bozeman against Great Falls High. Number four, Billings West in a crosstown game against Billings Senior. Let's run through some of the statistical leaders across the state real quick. I don't want this to turn into a whole other podcast, but let's give some shine to some of the great players across the state. Lucas Thompson from Billings Senior and Oliver Betcher from Bozeman Gallatin tying for the boys AA scoring lead with 14 goals apiece. Hellgate's Henry Pierce was second with 13. Owen Guthridge from Billings West with 12. Bunch of players with 11 goals as well. Harrison Sanders from Glacier. Gunnar Shoemate from Capital. Tag Olson from Hellgate. Tim Scott from Hellgate as well. And over in the east, Noah Russell putting up 11 goals for Belgrade. For the assist charts, not even close. Brady Reed. The sophomore from Missoula Hellgate, a kid who's been getting a lot of buzz in the Missoula soccer community, 22 assists in 14 games for Brady Reed. Next closest player, Ethan Hallway from Billings West, had 12, so an Aaron Judge-esque lead on the assist charts for Hellgate's Brady Reed. Harrison Sanders, who we already mentioned from Kalispell Glacier, with 11 assists to go with his 11 goals. For the girls... What an unbelievable scoring race that ends up tied, actually. One player from the East and one player from the West putting up ridiculous scoring stats. Reagan Brizendine from Kalispell Glacier finishes with 33 goals on the season. A number that was matched over in the East by Bozeman Gallatin's Olivia Collins. 33 goals and 8 assists. And she's going to be one of the main reasons why the Raptors have a real great shot to win that state title. Following up behind them, a bunch of other big scorers in the West. Avery Decoit from Missoula Big Sky, 23 goals. Carmen Anderson from Hellgate with 22. And McKenna George, also from Big Sky, with 20 goals on the season. Bozeman High's Ursula Vlasas and Billings Senior's B Bentler tying for second in the East with 15 goals apiece. With assists, again, we're seeing most of the big numbers over in the West. Big Sky's Avery Decoit leading the state there with 20 assists. So how about that season? For her, 23 goals, 20 assists for Avery Decoit out of Missoula Big Sky. Carmen Anderson, who again, we already mentioned, second in the state with 16 assists, so 22 goals, 16 assists for Carmen Anderson from Hellgate. Only a couple players in the East got to double digits, both from Bozeman Gallatin Emory Streets with 10 assists. Natalie Sipos with 10 assists as well for the Raptors. There's your rundown state playoffs starting in Class AA. The day after I post this podcast, Tuesday, October 18th. Of course, the state playoffs have already started in Class A. Already down to the state semifinals. So on the boys' side, in those games, all of these games will be Saturday, October 22nd. Columbia Falls versus Loyola. Wildcats have looked unstoppable this year, they're still undefeated. Beat Billings Central 2-0 in the quarterfinals. Other semifinal game in boys' class A, Livingston versus Whitefish. Whitefish, of course, the defending four-time state champions. Bulldogs beat Hamilton 2-1 in the quarterfinals. On the girls' side, the semifinal games this weekend, Whitefish versus Hamilton. Whitefish knocked off the defending state champion, Laurel Locomotives, in a classic in the quarterfinals. 3-3 at the end of regulation. Bulldogs win 3-2 on penalty kicks. Whitefish has been, I think, probably the best team in the state all season, but you don't get to play those teams from the East, and it must have felt good for the Bulldogs to confirm that with that win over the defending state champions. So they play Hamilton with a berth in the state championship game on the line. Other girls semifinal, Billings Central vs. Columbia Falls. Billing Central with no trouble in the quarterfinals knocking off Steve I-5-0. Here are some statistical leaders from across Class A. Finley Sundberg, the senior forward from Columbia Falls, leading the Class A boys in both goals and assists. 23 goals and 14 assists so far on the season. Cooper Davis from Laurel, second on the goal-scoring charts with 18. On the girls' side, Hannah Hughes, just a sophomore from Hamilton beating Maya Mack, Laurel's record-holding goal scorer. To the scoring title this year, end of the regular season, Hughes had 29 goals to max 25. With Mac and the locomotives eliminated, she will not be adding to her total of 27 goals. Hannah Hughes still playing with Hamilton has 30 goals now on the season between the regular season and the playoffs what a career what a year for Maya Mack whose 27 goals this season were enough to see her break the all-class state scoring record taking that record away from Billings Central's Morgan Farristad when Maya Mack scored her 119th career goal in a game against Lone Peak earlier this season congratulations to her one of the great careers we've seen in Montana high school soccer. Three other players also managed to hit 20 goals this season. Abby Derbyshire from Billing Central with 23. Hope McAtee from Columbia Falls with 22. And Olivia Genovese, the leading scorer for the Whitefish Bulldogs with 21 goals on the season. All stat scores, standing schedules, and otherwise brought to you as always by the incomparable, the indispensable, the incredible wallsoccer.net. If you need any info about high school soccer in Montana, that's where to go wallsoccer.net exciting time in soccer in montana both the college and the high school levels we'll be bringing you all the updates and exclusive interviews with the state title winning coaches as well as with montana head coach chris chinovitsky right here on soccer and snow and smoke soccer and snow and smoke is brought to you in part by blackfoot communications blackfoot communications is your internet provider all across the state of montana whatever your internet needs whether it's business or personal get in touch with blackfoot communications Using the latest technology and voice broadband network and managed services, to keep people reliably connected. Blackfoot Communications a great sponsor of everything that we do here at ESPN Radio, as well as with Skyline Sports and the official digital sponsor of Grizzly Athletics. Connect to more with Blackfoot Communications. Now back to the rest of my conversation with Sophia Tier, Americorps historian who put together a great exhibit on the history of soccer in Missoula, right here on Soccer in Snow and Stone Smoke. And for you, I mean, how difficult was it to find records about that time when it's still trying to become official and uh, there are a bunch of teams, there are teams that are traveling, there are rec teams that are forming and probably dissolving really quickly... That doesn't seem like something that would be reported a lot in the newspaper. I mean how did you how did you find out about that?
1: It actually was okay there's like there were so many sources i actually I had a hard time deciding what sources to put on my boards um, because I could only fit in so many with what people could read. but I have so many sources that talk about soccer in Missoula, and for it being a very relatively new team sport in the state, it was documented really well. Um, one of the coolest things that I found out as well was that um, the UM team went to Butte, the team I had mentioned earlier, and pre- presented them with a maroon M jersey. Is it was a soccer jersey, and so I think that you know, following World War One, we had some social divisions between returning soldiers, you know, uh, working families. Soccer really bridged that. And I think the Missoulian noticed that, at least the writers of the Missoulian, you know, really took, you know, they they loved the fact that soccer could act as a, a social bandage. Um, when people were playing soccer, they weren't worried about poor post-war stuff. They weren't worried about, you know, What are we gonna do tomorrow? What is international affairs? When soccer was being played, it was just soccer and people could enjoy it. And so I think that is probably why the Missoulian had so many articles so early, which you don't find very often.
0: Yeah, it's actually surprising to me, and I, I knew this before, but it's always surprising to me when I think about it, that the Missoulian has existed for that long and you know, sort of uninterrupted for that long and that there are archives That's not some random other paper that started back in the early 1900s. It's it's the Missoulian, and it's always been there. Sophia Etier joining me for a Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast, a really interesting, a little bit different Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast, talking about the history of soccer in Missoula. She put together a great exhibit on that for Soccer Day, which was last weekend, and she agreed to come in and join me in the studio here to talk about it a little bit more. So moving forward, I mean, from that post-war period, or I guess in between the wars, um, but moving forward into World War II, what were you able to find out?
1: So the biggest thing that I found, um, again, during World War II, troops began playing soccer between companies overseas in the European theater. However, we did get the internment of the Italians and Japanese at Fort Missoula, for the Italians between 1941 and 1943, um, then Italians or the Italy surrendered and you know, they switched sides. Um, but f- between essentially 1941 and 1943, the biggest presence of soccer in Missoula was be- between these Italian attorney teams. Um, they had a little bit more free range at the fort. They could come and go as they pleased. They always had to return at the end of the day. Um, but they weren't as regulated as the Japanese internees were. Um, But they really, really enjoyed playing soccer in between um, coming back from work or coming back from farming. They assisted a lot with construction and agriculture at this time. And so they used soccer as a way to kind of not only pass the time, but... To enjoy their stay at Fort Missoula. Um, They termed Fort Missoula Bella Vista. And so I think, you know, bringing that soccer element, which was played in Europe, you know, quite heavily before it was ever played in the US, into Fort Missoula and to be able to use it to, you know, bond with the men that were there. And it was essentially that same shared experience that we have witnessed before.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit more about the history of Fort Missoula as an internment camp, just to put something like that into perspective, um, and and what day-to-day life would have been for for the men who were staying there.
1: So it differed a little bit. Um, For the Italian Italian internees, they were mostly merchant marines that were taken from ship when they uh, came to port on the East Coast and they were transported here. I think there was roughly 1,200 Italian attorneys, um, and they their stay roughly lasted between 1941, right before we entered the war, um, because as many might know, we didn't want to get involved. We were really trying to practice isolationism. However, we were still allies with Great Britain, and so we impounded ships that were enemy ships and sent the Italians here, Italian men. Um, and they... Could work in what you know, whatever conditions that was feasible. Um, like I said, they they worked on sugar beet farms a lot. Sugar beets were, was a huge product in Missoula. Uh, they worked in construction a lot. They actually aided in the building of Highway 12, uh, and they worked in forestry a lot. Um, so they would come and go, you know, day to day working, coming back, um, and they stayed in the barracks. That is the. Um, regional headquarters now on the fort um, that kind of looked onto the parade grounds and also where the soccer fields were. Um, They weren't official soccer fields, but they, uh, they were their soccer fields. And then for the Japanese internees, it was a little different. Um, They, so during this time period, there was department of justice relocation or internment camps and then war relocation areas. And Fort Missoula was a department of justice, Uh, internment camp, essentially Japanese men would be rounded up, brought to Fort Missoula for loyalty hearings. And then after their hearing was over, they would be brought to a relocation camp where families were. So it was only men at this camp, but Fort Missoula's camp. However, when they were transported to a relocation camp, it was usually um, men, women, and children. Um, So that was kind of The fort's history with internment, uh, the Japanese, they were much more regulated. They were much more restricted. Um, They did not have the freedom to come and go that the Italians did. They essentially stayed there, waited for their hearing, and then would be transported later on. There were a few Germans um, at the fort, but a large portion of the German population actually went to Bismarck, North Dakota. So, it was essentially just Italians and Japanese.
0: Yeah, and and was it surprising for you that, you know, people who were interned there would, you know, have some sort of recreation and then would would naturally turn to soccer? I think
1: it wasn't surprising. I think in the roundabout way of things, it made sense. It was what they knew, it was a comfort for them, and so being in a place that wasn't their home, they relied on soccer to bring that comfort back. Um, the Japanese played baseball at Fort Missoula. So they, these men at this time really used sports as a way to escape from the reality for at least a little bit for a game or two. Um, and so it was unsurprising for the fact that they reached back to their nation's pastimes in order to pass their time.
0: Sure. It's Sophia Etir. She's serving with AmeriCorps this summer in a position at Fort Missoula, the museum there at Fort Missoula, and she put together a great exhibit on the history of soccer in Missoula for Soccer Day, which was last weekend. Uh, We've had a great, fascinating conversation starting with the early history of soccer and sort of the development of organized college sports. We've touched on both world wars. We've touched on this is what I love about history. It gives you so many avenues to branch into different topics. I mean, we've talked about both World Wars. We've branched into, like you said, the, the sugar beet industry in Montana, the, the construction of Highway 12. Let's bring it all forward in, in sort of a great rush here up to the future. I mean, what did you find out? What path did the development of Soccer Missoula take after the Second World War? And, and sort of what brought it up into the state that we see today?
1: So, essentially, there was a service called uh, American Field Service, AFS, and it brought international students into the United States as a way to solve, uh, a way to gain peace after wartime, and it started in the mid-50s, I want to say, in Montana. Um, I'm not quite sure on that date, Um, but we had tons of international students coming every year, and they would always... Play soccer. It was a tradition to pass a soccer ball between the international students and the Missoula residents um, at their snowball dance, which is at the end of their stay in Missoula, or at the end of their host families, and you know that kind of interaction between international students and American student or Missoula students actually bled into the University of Montana. Um, the University of Montana's international exchange students actually found commonality in being able to play soccer. Uh, it didn't matter where they came from, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America. They all found that you know there were language barriers, but soccer basically bulldozed over that. And so it was the efforts of the University of Montana's international students that actually founded the first, uh, university team. Um, they didn't have a ton of equipment, you know, they didn't have a ton of, you know, cleats or anything like that. They were actually using reused football equipment. Um, but it was their determination to come together as a group that actually really founded, uh, the university of Montana's soccer program. Um, and it kind of took off from there. It became more of a club and, you know, a, a co-curricular club, if you
0: yeah. Yeah, and that's what I understand is that it was a club team generally yeah. and they weren't they not NCA sanctioned but still playing a bunch of other universities Club teams.
1: Intramural. That's the word I was thinking of. Sure. Um, And so from there, the club really gained popularity with Missoula players. As I said, it it had kind of been formed throughout, you know, 1900 through 1955 through recreational programs. Um, So the university really took the club off from there. They started playing, you know, all kinds of universities around the area um, into, you know, British Columbia, Washington, Idaho, And they were actually a really powerful team for a long time. I think in 61-62, they were undefeated for the majority of the season. Um, You know, as Grizz Sports started picking up with soccer, because the university really had a fascination with American football towards the beginning of the university's existence. Um, Soccer really came back into popularity um, in the 50s and 60s as the university allowed uh, the club to exist. They extended um, soccer opportunities to work-study students who would teach it through YMCA programs. Um, That's kind of the 50s and 60s same kind of recreational getting kids involved um bringing soccer to the community and then in the 70s and 80s we see the rise of the strikers and more of the groups that charlie had been associated with in the early years
0: that's right and that club team um, that played for several decades at the university of montana what a fascinating story we'll we'll have um, sort of spoiler for the future Plenty of those players coming on the podcast to talk about their experiences. That's something that I'm really looking forward to. But yeah, it was also in, in the 70s where it sort of bled a little bit more into the community and we saw the establishment of Missoula Strikers, which actually celebrated their 40th anniversary this year. So what would that be, 1972, 1982?
1: 19 Yeah, I think they were founded in 81, played their first official
0: season in 82, Right, and that's as it started to transition out of being um, you know, a recreational sport into more organized clubs. This might have been outside your purview or outside what you researched, but the development then of the girls' program at the university.
1: Yeah, we uh, Charlie wanted to really focus on the strikers and the more youth organizations, um, but I believe it was in 94 that we had our first UM sanctioned, like NCAA sanctioned team. So that was kind of at the end of the chronology that we were going with. But yeah, essentially, um, after seeing the prevalence of the youth teams in the late 70s, throughout the 80s, and then into the 90s, that's when the university really said, hey, you know, we have this men's club that's been going on for a while, since 59. You know we need to expand it into women's sports as well, and that's really in the late '90s that the
0: women's team kind of came into existence. Certainly, and of course, you know Title IX associated with that, which is just a whole another avenue of history we could go down. But we're we're pretty well caught up now. As Sophia, thank you so much for being here. It's Sophia Tier serving with Americorps this summer at the Historical Museum of Fort Missoula. As a historian, she put together a great exhibit on the history of soccer in Missoula. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you wanted to bring up? Anything else interesting that you found?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Um, and then I I think that we've touched on basically everything. It just, it's fascinating to me how his, or soccer has been so ingrained in Missoula's history as a way of bridging any barrier that would have been, you know, present. Um I, I, like I said earlier, I am not a soccer person. However, I did find a passion for the sport, seeing what it did for the community. And I think that's really reflective of what SAM or Soccer Alliance Missoula is trying to do. And I think that's really cool that, you know, they're continuing that tra- uh, tradition of using soccer as a way to better the community, you know, even if it's just through a sport. You know, it's really it's not I think Charlie kind of mentioned this before, too. And he said it's not really about the sport. It's about the impact that the sport makes. And that has been really carried on from 1909 to where we are now and to where we're going.
0: Yeah, and I think it meshes really well with a lot of the ideas that Missoula Has about itself, and that people have about Missoula as a very international community, very inclusive community. And and that is, like you said, what Charlie was talking about with Soccer Day Missoula, just trying to bring people together and trying to have people, as you've mentioned, sort of find a common language um, through sport. So that's very cool to be able to see that in the history as well. It's Sophia Itir of AmeriCorps. Serving in a position at the Historical Museum of Fort Missoula, who's just given us a great rundown of the history of soccer in Missoula for much of the previous century. Sophia, it was fascinating talking with you. Thank you again. Thank you. This has been another episode of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Soccer and Snow and Smoke is brought to you as always by Zootown Sports Cards down there in the Stevens Center at their new location, 2100 Stevens Avenue. Go down there and check out their cards. They've got a great selection of soccer cards. They've got packs, boxes, if you want to rip, if you want to just go down and look for your favorite player. They'll help you with that, too. They've got all the great stars of the game. They've got cards for you. So go down there and talk with Hillary and Jason. Again, Zootown Sports Cards, 2100 Stevens Avenue, in the Stevens Center. For Sophia Etier, I'm Andrew and This has been Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Thank you for listening.